Welcome back, ghouls and goblins, to the Esoteric Book Club. You're listening to Episode 3, The Slender Man. Before we get started, I have to put a content warning on this episode. It contains violence, assault, animal cruelty, and suicide. At the end of the episode, I'll also be talking about a news article from John Beckett on the processes and theories behind Druidry. Without further ado, let's embrace the strange. The Slenderman Mysteries, an internet urban legend comes to life by Nick Redfern. For those of you unfamiliar with this entity, let me describe it real briefly. The Slenderman is an overly tall, often exaggerated entity in a three-piece business suit. He's dressed very well. His arms are overly long, and his fingers form into talons, or, in some descriptions, tentacle-like appendages. His most striking feature, though, is his complete lack of facial features. He has no eyes, no nose, no mouth. He lurks in the background, usually in the forests and woods surrounding cities, and his favorite prey is children. The Slender Man was created on June 10, 2009 by Eric Knudsen on the Something Awful website. It was part of a contest to see who could create the most unsettling, the most disturbing modern mythology. Clearly, Eric Knudsen won, hands down. Originally, the Slender Man's first appearance was just two photoshopped images, inspired by Men in Black, The Mothman, H.P. Lovecraft, and the description of shadow entities. He was inspired to create something whose motivations can barely be comprehended and causes general unease and terror in a general population. The first image was captioned, I quote, 1983. We didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill him. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. The second photo has the following caption. One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze, notable for being taken the day which 14 children vanished and for what is referred to as the Slender Man. Deformities cited as film defects by officials. Fire at the library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. Immediately, this entity latched onto the collective consciousness of the viewers of the forum. It's easy to see how this took off very quickly into its own phenomena. The internet user, known simply as the letter I, is quoted as saying, The Slender Man. He exists because you thought of him. Now, try and not think of him. By June 20th, just 10 days after the creation of the Slender Man, the YouTube channel Marble Hornets launched a web series featuring him as a primary entity. This series lasted five years and eventually became a feature-length film. On November 6th of that year, Coast to Coast AM did a show where listeners would call in and talk of their encounters with the Slender Man in real life, not on the computer screen. All of this is pretty intense, but I've got to warn you, from here on out, it gets really, really weird. With the background information out of the way, the author starts going into his theories. He starts to talk about what's called a talpa. Talpa is a Tibetan Buddhist term, meaning manifestation. Originally, the concept was something that you would focus on in meditation, and that the more attention you paid to it, 
the more realistic it would become in your mind. Currently, tulpas are something where people's collective consciousness focuses on a single subject, and in this focus and concentration can possibly cause it to become real. Any listeners who have looked into the modern principles of magic recognize this. Modern magic utilizes a person's focused will in order to create tangible effects in the real world. Now imagine this amplified by the millions of viewers focused upon an entity such as the Slender Man. Similar to the Tulpa is the concept of the Egregore. Egregore is a thought form created by a collective group. The term is Greek for watchers and once was used to refer to angel-like entities. In 1868, this term was defined as the very specific entities who became the fathers of the Nephilim. Later on, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the Rosicrucians conceptualized this term as a thought form, an entity created from the thought and will of its members. That means the Tulpa and Egregore falls into the same category of creatures as golems, servitors, or homunculi. In 1972, a Toronto-based research society created something very similar. This went on to be known as the Philip Experiment, the name given to the entity that they tried to create. The idea was to create an in-depth, detailed history for an individual who did not exist. They created an elaborate backstory about a 17th century English lord, and then they waited. They waited for contact. They waited for a sign and they waited for some evidence that this may have come to pass. The researchers grew impatient, and so instead of waiting for evidence to come to them, they decided to go looking for it. They hosted a seance, and with the help of a medium, they were able to make contact with this individual who never really existed. They were getting answers and responses to questions that they were posing, Clearly, this came from an intelligence of some sort. Was it Philip? Or was it a trickster spirit messing with the participants? While any evidence from the Philip experiment is completely anecdotal, it does show that something was formed from their efforts. This is not the only modern example we have of this phenomenon. In fact, most examples come from very creative individuals, such as artists or writers. The notorious comic artist and writer Alan Moore is known for a wide range of creations, but he's most widely known for his creation of the character John Constantine in the comic Hellblazer. As the story goes, Moore was sitting in a sandwich shop, and while he was sitting there eating his lunch, he says that John Constantine, his creation for comics, walked past him, looked him in the eye, and walked around the corner and disappeared. Now, Moore said that he had two options in front of him. One, he could turn around and go after him and encounter his own creation. Or, he could stay there and eat his lunch. Unfortunately, Moore decided that his sandwich was more important. While this is the only account written in the book about this phenomena, there are other authors who are recorded as having these same encounters. One is Robert Howard, the author and creator of Conan the Barbarian. It was said that his inspiration for writing the very first Conan story, The Phoenix and the Sword, came from Conan himself, who showed up while he was sitting at his typewriter one evening, placed a large hand on his shoulder, and threatened him if he did not recount his tales. 
Neil Gaiman, famed author, artist, writer, director, really just creator in general, also encountered one of his characters while on an airplane trip. In his comic series Sandman, Gaiman depicts Depp as a young goth girl. On this airplane ride, he ran into her and was able to get a good glimpse at his creation. The final example comes from Alvin Schwartz, who many of you may not have known. He was a prolific comic writer for both Superman and Batman, creating stories for well over 20 years. So while you may not know him or his name specifically, you have seen his works. Now, after he left the comic business, he wrote a book called An Unlikely Prophet. In that book, he talks about an encounter he had with Superman. Yes, he ran into Superman in real life. It doesn't specify whether he ran into the guy wearing tights with a cloak, or if it was Clark Kent. Either way, he was able to encounter his creation in real life. While it may seem like a concept such as a tulpa is a bit far-fetched, we have many examples, especially examples from the modern age, that show it is possible. And these are just examples that I thought the listeners would be most familiar with. In the book, Nick Redfern actually goes into more of the esoteric creations. In fact, there's two that have very frightening end results, but I'll leave those for you to discover on your own. Unfortunately, this is the part of the story where things start to turn considerably more grim. The Slender Man, originally just a concept of modern mythology, has now started to affect the real world. Before I go into this next section, I want to point out that I was completely unaware of how well the release of this podcast would coincide with the events that happen in the following story. It was completely unintentional, and I did not mean to release this on the anniversary of these events. In May of 2014, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, two 12-year-old girls obsessed with the Slender Man planned an elaborate sacrifice and murder that would give them access to the Slender Man's home deep within the forest nearby. They lured one of their friends and attacked her, stabbing her 19 times in an attempted sacrifice to the Slender Man entity. While the attack was critical, it was not fatal, and the girl survived. In police interrogations, one of the attackers admitted that she was worried about what would happen to her and her family if the sacrifice had failed. There's no information released on how she reacted when she was informed that her attempt did in fact fail. Reports from the other attacker says that the girl dreamed of the Slender Man entity for most of her life. In fact, she had been dreaming about him well before his creation on the Something Awful website. In order to prevent further mayhem, the city has raised the location of the attempted murder and bulldozed the entire area. Unfortunately, this was just the first recorded attempted murder inspired by the Slender Man. One week after the Wisconsin attacks, an Ohio teen attacked her mother with a butcher knife while wearing a black hoodie and a pale mask. In follow-up interviews, the mother claimed that the girl was obsessed with Slenderman and, during the attack, acted as if she were a completely different person. Three months later, a Florida teen attempted to burn her family alive by setting fire to her garage in the middle of the night. 
Writing in her journal revealed that she was obsessed with the Slender Man, and more disturbingly, by the attacks in Wisconsin. Finally, in 2014 and 2015, on the Pine Ridge Reservation, more than 100 youths attempted suicide. A local pastor was able to stop some, and in this he attributes this wave to the Tall Man Spirit, or Walking Sam, a native entity that resembles the Slender Man. Now we return to Waukesha, Wisconsin, and go back in time a little bit. We're going to tell a story about the Hill Farm in 1898. Magdalena Hill, the matriarch of the family, grew ill. The family called for a doctor, and the doctor, thinking that he was administering medicine, gave her a large dose of, well, it ended up being poison, and Magdalena passed away. In his grief, her husband John soon passed away from starvation. That left their six children to fend for themselves. Very quickly, one of their handicapped sons died on the farm. After that, one of their younger sons, Oscar, died after being savaged by a bull. At this point, one of the farmhands named Elder Kraus, along with the neighbor, Ernest Fence, decided they were going to blackmail the remaining children. World War I had just begun, and Kraus had decided that he was going to turn in the hills as German spies. That is, unless they paid him a large sum of money. In response to the blackmail, the eldest son, William Hill, shot the neighbor Ernest Fence with a shotgun. Kraus turned and fled. In the wake of his actions, William very calmly walked to the barn, where he shot his dog, shot five of their horses, and then turned the shotgun on himself. In the wake of this violence, the eldest daughter, Hulda, drank poison and then cut her own wrist. It is unclear what happened to the two remaining children, but they certainly did not remain on the farm. It sat empty for almost two decades. Then, in 1932, a man by the name Pratt died while trying to dynamite rocks on the property. In 1948, the property was purchased by Ralph and Dorothy Ransom. They survived most of their time without incident, but in 1972, things got worse. Their grandkids became victims. One child drowned, while the other was crushed to death under some machinery in the very same barn where William Hill took his own life. Since then, the last known owner has reported the farm being stalked by shadowy figures. All of this took place very, very close to the location where, in 2014, the two girls attempted to gain entrance to the Slender Man's mansion. At this point, the author goes into various first-hand accounts many of which have to deal with viewing Slenderman-type entities well before his creation. One of these stories revealed some information that I found particularly interesting. It seems that German fairy tales have a wide selection of Slenderman-type entities that haunt their forest. This includes Der Schwarzerman, a shadow man that kidnaps children, the Poppelman, a kidnapper of kids, whose most notable feature is his faceless face, and the Busbeller, who is very similar. Finally, there's the Bozerman, who terrorizes kids and wears all black. The book ends with a conclusion from the author, but I wanted to go into my own impressions here. The idea that the collective consciousness of a large group of viewers can manifest something in the real world seems quite possible, and in this instance, very, very likely, considering how many millions of people have viewed the Slender Man. 
That said, it also seems like the Slenderman entity may have existed well before its creation on the Something Awful forums. Slenderman may be a worldwide phenomena, but it seems that what is happening in Waukesha, Wisconsin is rather unique. You see, a lot of these accounts are very related to the German creatures that I listed just a moment ago. What's even more unique is the Hills, themselves, were German immigrants. Did they bring this entity with them when they immigrated to America? Has the German entity with a faceless face been haunting the Wisconsin countryside since the mid-1800s? It's still a little early to say, but until we find more information, I think we all need to be aware and be wary of the Slender Man. Now, let's shift gears to something entirely different. We're going to talk about the article, A Druid Method, by John Beckett, as presented on Patheos.com. The inspiration for this article came from listening to a podcast where author and former druid Emma Russell Orr made the following quote. In reference to druids practicing outside of Great Britain, she says, Druidry is not the religion of the landscape. It's the religion of, perhaps, their ancestors. For me, in Britain, I get druidry through the landscape. What she's saying is that people outside of Great Britain can't truly be druids because they're not practicing in Great Britain. Could you imagine telling a Tibetan Buddhist that what they're practicing isn't the true religion because it's not being done in India? Or telling a Christian that they can't be a follower of Christ because they're not doing it physically in Jerusalem? As much as I hate applying the term colonizer to an aspect or idea, that's exactly what this is. This Anglo-centric viewpoint where if you don't do it the way they do in England, in England itself, you're doing it wrong. I wonder if this has anything to do with why she's considered to be a former druid. In response, Beckett begins at the very beginning. What is druidry? Our current ideas of druids are probably a modern creation. Ultimately, we just don't know too much about them. We know that generally it was a social class rather than a profession, and that the idea of religion to them was an alien concept. I don't mean that they didn't have religion. I mean that it wasn't a separate delegation within their society. They didn't take a certain number of days off each year to worship the gods. They simply went about their everyday business and followed the gods as they felt compelled to do so. Making the gods a separate aspect of their lives would have been a completely alien concept to them. That means modern Druidry is likely very, very different from what was traditionally practiced. Even the term Druid has a very broad connotation. There's many different organizations and factions that follow the same path. Some are philosophical. Some are polytheistic religious organizations. And some are more akin to Western mystery traditions. In all fairness, historic Druidry was likely very different based on the location where it was practiced. What they did in Wales is going to be very different from what was practiced in Gaul. Beckett asserts, at its very heart, Druidry requires a connection to the land, but not specifically to England itself. He lists the following as the essential principles of Druidry. Connection to your ancestors. Connection to the land. Connection to the gods. And to practice your Druidry through study and community service. In his closing statement, he says, If we practice Druidry, we can become Druids. 
wherever we are. Beckett's response got me thinking. We all have our own practices and our own path that we follow. We should all also have our own principles. A lot of times we fall into the trap of following the principles laid down by other individuals. As such, we each need to take time to sit down and think about our own. In preparation for this podcast, I sat down and created my own set of principles of Druidry. The first is leadership. Even historically, people have looked to Druids for guidance. Not everyone is comfortable with being a leader, but this is a role that will be assigned to you, regardless of your comfort level. The next is scholarship. You must have knowledge of the past in order to better predict the future and to react in the present. Following that is animism. In a nutshell, it's the belief that not only people, but places and things can have a spirit. In this role, you must also be comfortable in knowing that you're not always going to be a leader. Sometimes, you must be a servant. That brings us to our next principle, service. Giving back to the community is an important aspect. The expanse of this community is entirely up to you. Some people may be comfortable working in a soup kitchen, while others may be more comfortable leading a book group. Either way, the idea is that you're giving back to the community in the form of time and expertise. The final principle, and the one most widely associated with Druidry, is an awareness and observance of natural cycles. Historically, Druids were leaders of quarterly festivals, which means they were timekeepers, observers of seasons, and other cycles of nature. They were involved in both peacetime and wartime. They were not proponents of neutrality, so to speak, but more about the maintenance of equilibrium. They knew that if the pendulum swung too far in one direction, inevitably, it would need to swing back. As I said before, these are the principles by which I guide my practice. Yours may appear very different from mine, but then again, that's kind of the point. So in this time of the full moon, I encourage you to sit back and reflect upon your own practice. What are the core principles of your beliefs? That concludes the third episode, but before we go, I have another announcement to make. In conjunction with the Esoteric Book Club, I will also be releasing the Esoteric News Briefs. While Book Club episodes are released on the full moon, the News Briefs will be released on the new moon. So pay attention, the next episode will be released in a fortnight. Until then, remember, stay weird.